1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia and co-host of this channel thanks to the international tourism industry most people are familiar with the spectacular ruins of Angkor the great Cambodian empire that lasted from the 9th to about the 14th or 15th century we're perhaps especially familiar with those haunting images of the face of King Jayavarman VII represented in those stone sculptures of the Bayon temple in Angkor Thom Archaeologists and historians tend to relate the history of the Angkorian era through the dynasties of kings. These are, of course, all male images. But this apparent maleness of the Angkorian state contrasts with one of the paradigms of Southeast Asia as a cultural zone, and that is the comparatively high status of women. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Ashley Thompson, who is the Hiram W. Woodward Chair in Southeast Asian Art, SOAS University of London. She addresses this apparent contradiction in her new book entitled Engendering the Buddhist State, Territory, Sovereignty and Sexual Difference in the Inventions of Angkor, published by Rutledge as part of its Critical Studies in Buddhism series. Ashley, thanks for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies and congratulations on the book.
0: Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me.
1: Now before we discuss or go into the details of the book, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about yourself, how you first became interested in Angkor, the history of Cambodia and Southeast Asian art and archaeology? This
0: is a question one often gets asked and I respond in many, many different ways depending on the situation. I think that's due in some part to the fact that the question assumes a linear narrative and of course we proceed In linear manners, but also in very non-linear manners, one can pick and choose as to how one describes involvement in Southeast Asian studies. So I'll I'll give you one of mine. When I was in university in in the US, I took an extraordinary class called Feminist Literary Criticism in the French department. In that class, I began to, to discover some thinking, some ways of writing, some ways of reading in particular, that were oriented towards thinking questions of sexual difference, thinking through questions of the aesthetics and the politics of sexual difference. And I managed to take a year out in France and I found the the seminar of an extraordinary writer called Hélène Sixou. And in that year, this was in 1985, I believe, 85, 86, she was in the process of writing a play for the Théâtre du Soleil in Paris. And her mission that year was to write an epic play on the genocide in Cambodia. So it was in attending her seminar as a very young American, discovering literature, language, reading, aesthetics, politics of sexual difference, as I said, and then attending this extraordinary eight-hour Shakespearean production, really, on the recent history of Cambodia that opened up a path that I was to follow for decades, in fact, and a path that I'm still very much following. So uh, subsequent to that, I you know, had to go back and finish my degree in the U.S., and I began working with Southeast Asian refugees arriving in the Boston area at the time. That led to work in a refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodian border with Cambodians. That led to a feeling of despair that the political situation was emerging out of a historical background that no 20-year-old could understand. And I had to go back to graduate school to understand what people were experiencing there. So graduate school, that notion led me back to graduate school in France. Because Cambodia had been a colony of France, I was able to study classical Khmer studies, if you will, language, art, yeah, sort of develop that uh, deep historical basis that is necessary to really think about what goes on in Cambodia even today, and also to uh, work further with an Ksu on the more theoretical dimensions of my interests. That's one story of how I got where I am now into this book. There are many other stories.
1: (laughs) Can you tell us why you decided to write this book? Why is it important and what did you hope to achieve?
0: I think in the first instance, the book is meant to shake up the rather staid field of the study of ancient Cambodian art and archaeology, really to introduce or to develop some more deeply developed theoretical thinking in that particular field. I think we often think that theory is associated with the contemporary, with the modern. And that art history of older periods and classical Chimera studies in this instance is to be treated otherwise. And that's not what I think. And I think it's important to try to make these kinds of incursions, no matter how difficult they may be. So I think I also wrote it in order to pay my respects to all the people who have been a part of my life. My teachers, my students who are also my teachers, and my time in Cambodia, I lived in Cambodia for a long time, and that time was absolutely foundational. And I think I owe it to a lot of people to put things on paper.
1: You mentioned, I think you used the word, the staidness of the field. If you look at Southeast Asian studies as a field more generally, it's a relatively young field. And perhaps, you know, in, in the construction of that field, we, there's a lot of the empirical work that needs to be done, which perhaps in the case of, say, European history has been done to a certain extent already. And that may have held back the more theoretical views of Cambodian history?
0: Yes, I think you could say that. I think there's there are also particular, more localized histories of the war in mainland Southeast Asia, which has held back a lot of people in region from developing their own work and the kind of dialogue that is necessary for developing a productive, healthy interaction between what Sheldon Pollock um, calls the empirical matrix of the area and ways of thinking inside that come from all over the place has been stilted because of colonial histories and because of contemporary modern histories of warfare,
1: really. Before we delve into some of the book's major themes, can you give our listeners an overview of what the book is basically about?
0: Broadly speaking, it's an examination of the workings of, again, what Sheldon Pollock names the Sanskrit Cosmopolis, both in theoretical terms and in the very specific area example of Encore. And I, I do that with an eye to really to, to understanding, as the title indicates, to understanding the, the interdependent conceptualizations of territory, of sovereignty, and of sexual difference in the formulation of what we will call Encore. So I look at a series of cultural objects, if you will. One is the Sadat inscription, which is an 11th century history, in a sense, of the foundation of Encore in the early 9th century. And I look in that particular text, I consider the or through that particular text. In that particular text, I consider the phallocratic aesthetics of of bilingualism between the local vernacular Khmer language and the cosmopolitan Sanskrit language. In a subsequent chapter, I take that into the art historical domain by looking at the aesthetics of the vernacular cosmopolitan relation as objectified, as it were, in the Lingayoni Sculptural Ensemble. In a subsequent chapter, I look at another later Encorean inscription at the, the highlight, which also ushers in the end of the Ankorian Empire in the 13th century. And this is the inscription of Pimenica, which is quite exceptional insofar as it conveys the voice of a female writer speaking about her sister. And so I look at that, what that particular inscription might tell us also about certain questions of sexual difference in conception of space, territory, and what we call Encore. The final chapter, I consider the trajectory of the Yoni Sculptural Ensemble, which is the Shaivite sculpture, how that travels into the post-Encorean Theravadan Buddhist period, and continues to do its thing in new ways.
1: You mentioned a minute ago Sheldon Pollock, and it seems to me from reading the book that you seem to be in a kind of a dialogue with Sheldon Pollock's very important work, The Language of the Gods in the Worlds of Men, Sanskrit Culture and Power in Pre-Modern India, and you give particular attention to his influential concept, the Sanskrit Cosmopolis. For the uninitiated listener, could you explain what Pollock meant by this concept and why it's important for your book?
0: So I'm glad you gave the full title of the book there. Gods and Men is the fundamental. Sheldon Pollock is a Sanskritist and he has spent decades uh, looking at the, what he ultimately calls the Sanskrit cosmopolis. That is the, the development of Sanskritic culture across time and space. So over the course of the first millennium, the, the spread of, of Sanskritic culture across South and Southeast Asia. In many ways, what Pollock does is pursue the paradigm of Indianization. The uninitiated may not know the Sanskrit cosmopolis, but I would think all Southeast Asianists know what we mean when we talk about Indianization, for better or for worse. So in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a fine-tuned, uh, very sustained, very detailed, meticulous study of the work of the Sanskrit language as literature developing political cultural constructs across this region and he looks very carefully at the relationships between uh, various vernacular languages uh, across South, South Asia primarily but also Southeast Asia and the interactions with with Sanskrit which compose uh, what he calls the Sanskrit cosmopolis. So yes, in many ways, it is a, it is a pursuit of the Indianization uh, paradigm. In other ways, it counters the Indianization paradigm through the pursuit of postcolonial critiques thereof. That is, it allows for a notion of the Sanskritization of India in the same way that it allows for the notion of the Sanskritization of uh, Southeast Asia. In Sheldon Pollock's model, we're not looking at the birth and the full formed development of a culture that is then imported and impregnates as it were an empty fallow field which we call Southeast Asia, so his model allows for some notion uh, to some degree of a concomitant development that is encore develops the San- Sanskrit cosmopolis in ways that the Sanskrit cosmopolis is also developing in Southeast Asia, so I think that's that's a very important move.
1: You touched on this in your answer just now, but um, our knowledge of Angkorian history rests to uh, a great extent on a large number of Sanskrit and Khmer inscriptions. Can can you talk about perhaps why the language used in these inscriptions is so important and how they, they seem to be related to one of the book's major themes, that is this interaction between cosmopolitanism and indigeneity?
0: The ancient Khmer or the ancient Cambodian epigraphic corpus comprises texts in two languages, the local Khmer vernacular and the cosmopolitan Sanskrit. And this has different manifestations at different moments in time um, over the course of the pre-Enchorian and the Onkorian period. You can have bilingual inscriptions, you can have single language inscriptions, and of course you have the interaction between the two languages within the use of a single language. Of course that interaction is unequal. So we're looking at bilinguality and Sheldon Pollock's model of this bilinguality is based upon, he's not the one who invented this certainly. And it's based upon an understanding of two different functions of, of these two different languages. Sanskrit as the cosmopolitan language has a, in his view, a primarily poetic function, a rhetorical function, a literary function. He excises the religious dimensions of the materials. He's really interested in the, in the literary and the political dimensions of the materials This, I think, is very difficult to sustain with encore, but that's an issue I could discuss later. So the Sanskrit is the rhetorical, political, literary, if you will. And on the other hand, the vernacular language, in this case, Khmer, which uh, works in tandem with the Sanskrit... Is relegated to the to a documentary function. That is, it gives us lists of materials, uh, inventories of temples, inventories of servants or human resources associated with the temples, as well as material resources. It can give more legal accounts, et cetera. Now, there can be crossover between those to some degree, but that's a very a very, um, a very uh, straightforward initial way of characterizing the uh, the two functions of the language. So one thing that I'm particularly concerned with in considering the relations between these two languages and how they how they comprise the body of literature, which comprises the state as it documents and comprises in a certain sense, the temples and the statues are the power relations between those two. So what are the power relations between the poetic cosmopolitan and the vernacular documentary? And ultimately my question is both in the initial looking at the question of bilinguality with the Cock Tom inscription. And then in later chapters where I'm looking at uh, specific art objects and moments is looking at the gendered dimensions of those hierarchies and those power relations. And that is, in a sense, where I take off from Sheldon Pollock, if, again, I were to say he is a starting point for me, insofar as I have a certain critique of the lack of analysis of power and of the gendered forms of power that the Sanskrit cosmopolis depends upon for its survival.
1: Early in the book, you make a direct connection, really, between this theme of the cosmopolitan and the local, or more specifically, Cambodia's place in the Sanskrit cosmopolis, with the question of sexual difference. Can you explain or elaborate what you mean by this?
0: Let me take that in two ways. The first way is a bit more down-to-earth, that is... I think again, something that most any Southeast Asianist these days would know is that there is an extant scholarly paradigm opposing South Asia and Southeast Asia in terms of the treatment of women, the social, social political treatment of women or the social political status of women, which goes something like this. In South Asia, women are oppressed. And in Southeast Asia, we witness the relative equality of the sexes in traditional contexts so that's that's a paradigm which has been established within historical literature within anthropological literature within sociological literature etc and I think that it's often a paradigm which goes unquestioned and which uh, has been questioned in certain important ways and developed pursued relatively recently but the dimensions of that question which I'm interested in considering, are more on the order of the aesthetic and less on the order of the social, which isn't to say that aesthetics doesn't matter, which isn't to say that there aren't real effects, often real violent effects of, of symbolics. So that's the, the question that I explore in looking at these Encorean materials and looking at the formulations of the Sanskrit cosmopolis, which again, in my view, can not quite go far enough in analyses of power structures and analyses of gender as they facilitate, or formulations of gender as they facilitate, or are embedded in such power structures. It's a consideration of that question and of that paradigm of the relative equality of the the sexes in Southeast Asia through the Encorean materials, that on the one hand. On another hand, it's looking at the paradigm, and this is coming back to the question of Indianization and Sheldon Pollock's twist on that, So, of course, one of the great enigmas of the Sanskrit Cosmopolis is how did it happen without centralized military control? So Paula talks about this in terms of free will. Peoples who adopted Sanskrit did so, he says, of their own free will, again, in the absence of military coercion. One thing that I try to really develop is this dichotomy between, on the one hand, Military force, coercion, and on the other hand, free will is a problematic dichotomy. And I'll give you one way in which I try to approach this in the book through a reading of a section in in Pollock called Grammar Envy. So he, he has a little subtitle for one of his moments in his text called Grammar Envy. And Grammar Envy is, of course, a citation of the Freudian paradigm of penis envy. Penis envy is a lot of things. (laughs) In one reading of Freud's theory of sexual difference, penis envy is a damning condemnation of the ways in which society bring women to subjugate themselves. That is, you don't have to drag women kicking and and screaming to their own execution. It is Little girls understand early on that in order to have power, in order to have a voice, you need to have a penis. And so they want it. Okay. So again, I'm jumping over lots and lots of steps. Penis envy is a complicated thing and his grammar envy is a complicated thing. But what he's talking about in that section is the way in which local powers, local kings are vying for, for power through a perfection of Sanskrit grammar. So each one wants to write his own grammar, put his name on his own grammar in order to say, I'm the best. I'm the one to be envied, right? And they all envy it. They all want it. And what they want is Sanskrit. With the subtitle, I think he is very rightly making a- an association between the phallus and Sanskrit. And it's something that he doesn't analyze himself in his book. And I think it demands uh, substantial analysis. And so- I'm considering how the Sanskrit cosmopolis certainly did happen without military coercion, but there's no mistaking the phallocentric order, and there's no mistaking the way in which the phallus demands envy, and people walk to it. You may not be coerced militarily to do so, but you are coerced symbolically, socially to do so. So I, I argue against the notion of pure free will, which in and of itself is, of course, an enlightenment pre psychoanalytic construct of subjectivity. That is, we are all conscious beings out there for our own good. So I argue against this notion of, of pure free will to think in more complex ways about the symbolics and the gendered symbolics that the cosmopolis installed and ultimately, you know, encore as a, as a phallocratic system.
1: At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to probe in a little more detail one of the themes of the book that you've already mentioned, that is the question of the Indianisation of Southeast Asia. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies where we're talking with Ashley Thompson about her book Engendering the Buddhist State, Territory, Sovereignty and Sexual Difference in the Inventions of Angkor. Ashley, another scholar whom you're in dialogue with in the book is the great French scholar of Southeast Asia, Paul Mousse, whose career spanned the latter part of the French colonial period. You discuss in one part of the book how he was one of the earliest European scholars to challenge the old Indianization paradigm in the study of Southeast Asia. That is, you know, the perception that Southeast Asia was this kind of pale shadow of Indian civilization. Can you elaborate a little further on how uh, Musa's work is so important for your book?
0: I think if you take the title of the key piece that I work on in the book, India Seen from the East, he makes that move very early on. So in the in the first half of the 20th century, before the post-colonial perspectives to which we have become accustomed are really developing. And with the title, you see the gesture, which is to say, let's stand here on Southeast Asian soil and look the other direction and see what kinds of perspectives that gives us. And methodologically, that is, I think, quite important. Politically, it is quite important. I think that Moose's intellectual interventions were inseparable from his political interventions, indeed. And so it's an important moment in terms of his framing of his work. Uh, In terms of the actual work itself, it's also quite important for me because he's looking at relations between rock cults and the linga cult. So rock cults, um, which he posits as indigenous Southeast Asian ancestral cults, and how they did the work of, and they interacted with the Indic heritage in the form of the of the linga so the shiva's phallus which is an aniconic object that is a non anthropomorphic object that represents the hindu god shiva in the body of a phallus shall we say so he's he's quite interested in the relations between those those two things as it were but how then does that lead to something which i find quite interesting in him as well which is opening up his analyses to thinking about the place of women and or the feminine. You see this in the end of his article. He has something of a final spin-off where he cites an ancient Cham inscription that is a homage to a Shaivite female goddess. And then he moves from there into a kind of evocation of local women, that is women telling stories beside their huts. That's how he formulates it. So he opens this out as if there's a kind of understanding that where he's headed with these questions of, the two phallic forms, the rock cult and the linga, is why don't we go here too? Why don't we think about what's missing in this picture? And he doesn't fill in that gap, but he says, hey, there's something missing. This is this is where we need to go. So he sends us off with that. And I think that's a, a very important move. So one thing that I'm quite interested in the book and in the chapter, I believe it's chapter two, where I do work through some of Moose's questions It's where I begin to think through the relationship between the linga and the yoni. So what is the linga? The linga is this thing. It is the thing par excellence. That's In a sense, that's what a phallus phallus is. It's about thingness. It's about objectness. It's about here I am. I am not only a figure, but I am the figure. And what enables that to be seen? What enables the objecthood? of that thing is, of course, a pedestal. So, you know, if we take a step back, I'm trying to think about the work of art, not just the sculptural ensemble of linga and yoni, but what is the work, if you take work in a gerundive-like way, what is the work that that art does? How do we begin to focus in on on the pedestal as the enabler, as the facilitator, but without fundamentally, conceptually, without form? It is a form, of course, it's delimited, it's a pedestal, but it is a form which represents non-form and which enables form to happen. So we're looking at this male-female encounter, this relationship between a male symbol and a female symbol. So in a sense, they are in a binary, they're in a standoff, they're in a union or a disunion, but there they are together. At the same time, we're not looking at a binary. We're looking at two very different things. We're looking at a thing that represents thingness, and we're looking at a non-thing that facilitates thingness. And that's not a binary, that's a radical difference without a mirroring effect in some ways. So it's those kinds of questions which are aesthetic questions and which are political questions insofar as the linga is the Sanskritic form by excellence, which enabled the Sanskrit cosmopolis. The linga yoni ensemble is also quite explicitly a formulation of territorial delimitation. Okay, so the thing, the phallus, in a microcosm, macrocosm kind of way, represents the delimited territory of the kingdom or the delimited territory of a space which is being consecrated through the installation of that linga, et cetera. So it is an aesthetic form which has political effect, and I'm looking at the gender dimensions of that.
1: So following on from that, when we think about our understanding of the history of Angkor, it's quite heavily influenced by these scholarly translations of over a 1,000 stone inscriptions and as you point out, all of, but one of these inscriptions were written by men. And you translate and discuss the only one that was written by a woman, uh, who was one of King the VII's queens. Can you tell us a bit more about the significance of this particular inscription?
0: As you point out there, this is this is a, a rare female voice that comes through the historical record. How do you begin to analyze 50% of the population, 50% of what happens when you don't have 50% of the voices heard. I'm exaggerating to some extent, but in the epigraphic record that's what we have. When when I say I'm exaggerating, it's also that's also a sign to the art historical record because we don't only have statues of male gods and of male historical figures, we also have statues and and representations in relief and temples dedicated to Female figures. Okay, so that's that I think is quite important to acknowledge and to think through why why that distinction as well, why that difference between the epigraphic record and the art historical record or the architectural record. So this particular inscription is so she's a she's a woman, of course, but she's an elite woman. She is she is one of J- in the seventh queens, and one can certainly argue, and I do bring up this issue in the book, what is a queen? Is she phallic or not? You know, it's not necessarily a straightforward question who holds power also holds the phallus in a certain sense. So so we have to be careful about very simple interpretations and simple associations of biology and, or shall we say, of sex and gender. These are are questions that need to be worked through and worked through also very carefully in the historical record. Let's start from the the point that we have here, the voice of of a woman speaking about a woman. And there are a number of interesting things in this text. Um, it's written in Sanskrit. So again, she is a she is a scholar. She's clearly somebody who was who able to, com- to compose in Sanskrit. There are certain social signs that we get there. That is, education is not limited to, to men, it would seem. She also talks in the inscription about her efforts to educate women. But there's a, a moment in the inscription, a passage in the inscription, that I'm particularly interested in. And this is where the text gives us a kind of alternative account to the historical accounts of what the king himself does at this moment in time. So what the historical accounts that have been recorded and interpreted by modern scholars is of the exile of the future king off somewhere else and his return home to liberate the land. So a kind of savior king return sort of thing. What you see in this in this epigraphic account by the queen is how during the absence of the king, she undertakes aesthetic practice. So she goes through a a sort of a rigorous practice of meditation, shall we say? It's a Buddhist text. She goes through this process. And what you can understand from her description of the process is that through her intense aesthetic religious practices, she brings the king home. That is, in a, a kind of practice of possession, she comes to embody the king. And so she faces her own self as a medium does in the process of possession, and that enables a return of the king as she embodies him. So there's an esoteric account of how the king was brought home, and she's responsible for it. And that, to me, is quite interesting, quite important, that this is a perception of history. This is an account of history, which has been written out of the historical record through scholarly interpretation, which is there in front of our eyes. And this practice is also then associated in the inscription with the distribution of portrait statues, as we understand them. That is of statues of members of her, of her family, men and women across the country in association with or with the attributes of specific divinities, as we understand them. Perhaps, perhaps they're portraits of real people. Perhaps they're portraits of people, real people represented with the attributes of divinities. We're not entirely sure which statue she's talking about, but we have both of those during that period. So it's associated this practice of incorporation of embodiment of a real person of another person is then associated also with the statuary embodiment of real people doing or in association with deeply religious
1: practices. You argue in the book that the Sanskrit cosmopolis is, and I quote, consistently figured in terms of sexual difference, with the feminine on the side of the local, the earth, the place, the vernacular, and the masculine on the side of the universal, the transcendental, the cosmopolitan. Now, t- towards the end of the book, you dwell on two themes the decline of the Sanskrit cosmopolis and the coming of Buddhism to Cambodia. Could you say something about how this affected the way that sexual difference was organized in post Angkorian? Cambodia.
0: That figuration of the feminine on the side of the local, the vernacular, and the masculine on the side of the cosmopolitan is of course a figuration of the Sanskrit cosmopolis. So it's Sanskrit that that does that. But as Moose points out, that's Sanskrit, which does it quite explicitly in the literature and then again in the kinds of sculptural symbolics that I was just describing. But as Moose points out, we also see that happening on the side of the indigenous. So I also look at some ritual practices and associated art forms with those ritual practices on the indigenous side of things if we can actually make that separation, which we can't do so easily, but let's do it for for our purposes here that demonstrate this figuration also of the local, the ground on the side of the feminine and the traveling, the transcendent, the translocal, on the side of the masculine. As we move into the post encorean period, or what I often refer to as the middle period, we are looking at the spread of Theravada Buddhism, which comes with a different kind of material culture, certainly an associated material culture, and certainly the ways that that material culture and that Theravada Buddhism spreads after Encore is deeply embedded in Encore, deeply related to Encore. So we're not looking at night and day. We're not looking at Thursday. You go to sleep as a Shaivite, and Friday you wake up as a Theravada Buddhist, it's much more complicated than that. And Theravada Buddhism is very much embedded in some of the tantric practices or some of the Shaivite practices that can also be a part of what we think of as Shaivite practices that can also be a part of Mahayana Buddha practice, Buddhist practices, which were prevalent at Encore towards the end of the Encorean period. So Theravada Buddhism comes along, things change and things remain the same. It's, you know, you have to be able to be nuanced enough to think about both of those poles working together. One thing that I track in the book is the, the journey of the Linga and the Yoni into the post onkorian period. So into this Theravada and this early Theravada Buddhist moment. And one very interesting thing is the Linga and the Yoni as an object doesn't disappear from the landscape because of course they're all over the place. And they remain, they're in stone. But the concept is, is, in a sense, sublimated in two ways. It becomes a linguistic concept. So the prayer, which is the Khmer term for the sacred, the holy, pra and thai, that prayer becomes combined with the Sanskrit word for linga in Khmer pronounced lung. And that word, that becomes a single word called pralung. And that pralung means soul. And that soul is understood through anthropological study to be the indigenous construct. Okay. So it's an indi- it's the indigenous construct by Xenons. And so far as it's animism, it's animism, it's soul, you know, Cambodians have 19 of them, Thais have 32, etc. So it's considered to be the indigenous counterpart to the Linga in a sense, but it's named by the Linga, right? So the word that we have in Khmer clearly from the early middle period to designate the indigenous principle of animism is the Sanskrit linga. And so you see that developing in the middle period. And then you see another form of what I call a a sort of sublimation of the linga yoni ensemble, which is the development of a ritual accessory. And this ritual accessory is used to delimit space in all kinds of Buddhist and non-Buddhist ritual in post-Ankhorean up until modern Cambodia. And that ritual accessory is, in my analysis at least, a yoni, which is developed artistically. So it becomes sculpted. It's a handheld object. Okay. It's a candle holder actually. And that candle holder is beautiful. That candle holder is sculpted. It's a work of art in and of itself. So it's no longer the pedestal without artfulness that allows the art to be the art that it is, that is that allows the linga to emerge and to be seen. Now you have this sculpted thing, which is a candle holder. And that candle holder, and it has, you know, images on it and decor and motifs and gods and this sort of thing, and that candle holder holds a candle. So the candle is a wax thing that you attach to it, and that, of course, represents the linga. And you take this linga and the yoni, where you have a kind of inversion of the terms that is, the, as I was saying, the yoni becomes the art And it nonetheless holds this candle, the candle is lit, and then this object is passed around in a circle with some kind of object in the middle, a person or a thing which is being consecrated. And this object is passed around from person to person in the form of a circle around the object to be consecrated. And that brings the souls, that is the holy lingas, as it were, but the indigenous principle of souls into that object to consecrate that object. So you see the linga and the yoni at work within a thoroughly Theravada and Buddhist context, whatever that might mean, and you see it shifting form. You see it becoming embedded linguistically. You see it becoming embedded artistically, ritually, in ways that are quite different from the Onkorian period, but there it is doing its thing. So it's it's tracking also those developments. In terms of what happens in the post-Encorean period, what happens with these questions of gender, the last chapter in the book deals with that through that object and through the specific heritage of the Linga and the Yoni, I'm in the process of developing a second book, very much of a sequel to that particular book, which brings these questions into the post-Encorean period, but specifically looking at the Buddha image. So looking at the dominant iconography of the early middle period, that is from the, let's say the 13th to the 16th century, which is the Buddha image itself. I don't want to quite say himself, because that's one of my questions. I'm looking at old debates in Buddhist art history about what the aniconic is and what the anthropomorphic is and what their relationships between those two are. So the non-anthropomorphic image, which let's call it the stupa in my case, how it relates to the anthropomorphic image of the Buddha and what that says and how it works with questions of sexual difference and similar questions of subjectivity territoriality, spatiality in the post-Enchorian period. So in a sense, that's another one of the heritages of the Linga Yoni Ensemble, that is the Buddha himself or itself, or maybe in some instances herself.
1: Just before we end, I was wondering if you'd had any feedback on the book or the ideas in the book from Cambodian scholars that may have been in dialogue with.
0: That's a good question, because at the moment I'm working with a PhD student who it's not my PhD student at the moment, but a PhD student with whom I'm um, in dialogue, who is a teacher at the Royal University of Fine Arts in Cambodia, who's precisely trying to think through issues of Indianization with Setas, with a sort of lineage of Setas Pollock, looking at my work, looking at other interactions with the Indianization paradigm. But he's doing that. From from the ground up, in a sense, he's doing that through analyses of a contemporary ritual in Cambodia that has Indian roots and which is evidenced in the epigraphy of the very early Onkorian period in particular. He, he's trying to understand indigenous practices. Prior to Indianization, short of Indianization, accompanying Indianization, embedded in, in embedded in Indic and in Indic processes, he's looking at the work in Indic context. So, looking at this particular form of funerary ritual ac- across South Asia in the ancient period, and then he's tr- he's trying to track what it means when we say a Sanskrit cosmopolis when we look at this particular practice on the ground in Cambodia in the ninth century, and up into the present day. That's a very concrete example of somebody who's grappling with these issues and not grappling with many of the dimensions of the issues that I grapple with. That is that question of gender, for example, is not something that that figures in his work in any prominent manner yet. But the question of free will, coercion, indigenous genius, (laughs) this sort of thing is certainly what, he is really, really trying to think through through this lineage of scholarship. That's lovely for me to see that happening.
1: On that note, Ashley Thompson, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your book, Engendering the Buddhist State, Territory, Sovereignty, and Sexual Difference in the Inventions of Angkor. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening again. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to Eric Davis's Death Power, Buddhism's Ritual Imagination in Cambodia, or for those listeners with an interest in Sanskrit, A.M. Ruppel's The Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit, and you can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. <laughs>